Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I'll Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For today's classic episode, we wanted to bring back one Kristen and Caroline did on Polly Murray, who is one of my absolute favorite historical people. I remember when I learned about her, I was angry I hadn't known about her earlier. She's a literal saint. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. She did so much. She was one of the first real women to talk about intersectionality in a way in almost a legal way that we hadn't been doing before. Mm-hmm. So hugely important into feminism and a lot of the things that we talk about on this very show. And kind of, I guess not kind of odd, like a coincidence, but we have an upcoming episode right. with the creators of Unladylike, also the people whose voices you'll hear in this, right. Kristen and Caroline. Uh, and they bought up Polly Murray. And I was like, oh, hey. Perfect timing. <laughs> Perfect timing. So to get you ready for that upcoming episode and to just learn more about this amazing person, here's a classic episode on Polly Murray. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I'm so excited to talk about the woman we're going to talk about today. Me too. She has been on my mind all week, ever since we started reading about her. I can't get her out of my head. That just made me start thinking of that Kylie Minogue song. But yes, you're right. Uh, I, I know, I can't stop thinking about her either. Anne Polly Murray, who is this incredible trailblazer, but what's so fascinating and heartbreaking and impressive all at the same time about her story is that she managed to accomplish so much in in a single lifetime and push against standards and norms of her day. But she did it all from this almost personal place, this drive that comes from how she was raised, the environment she grew up in, and the discrimination that she herself faced. Yeah, and I first ran across her name probably a few years ago now, uh, where she was simply cited as the first African-American Episcopal priest. And I, when I saw the photo and the caption, I thought, oh, that seems really neat. Okay. And then sort of put her out of my mind. And then much more recently ran across an article talking about this entire life that she had before she entered the Episcopal priesthood. And while her story doesn't begin in 1971, I feel like that's a good place for us to sort of kick off our conversation about her and her life and her significance because she has a very close uh, legal history bond to one of our faves, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, and this is an excellent example of a woman paying tribute and giving credit to one of her predecessors, not just taking this woman's ideas and using them as her own, but really giving credit where credit's due. So, Well, and the story also highlights, too, the disparity between Anne Polly Murray's forgotten legacy mm-hmm. and the understandable notoriety of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, partially due to her, you know, being a Supreme Court justice. But in 1971, Ruth Bader Ginsburg argues on behalf of the ACLU, a landmark equal protection case, Reed v. Reed. And the quick background of this case was that uh, this couple that really wasn't together anymore, I think they were estranged, their adopted son died. And the father, according to an Idaho state statute maintaining that males must be preferred to females as administrators of estates, was automatically granted their deceased son's estate. But Mrs. Reed, in this case, um, wanted rights to the estate. And so they brought this equal protection case um, that ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court. And it was the very first time 
that the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause had been used to argue gender discrimination as unconstitutional, as opposed to racial discrimination. And so this whole case set a legal precedent against gender discrimination purely out of administrative convenience. So in this Idaho case, just being like, you know what, we're just going to give it to the dudes. They can have the rights and we just don't even have to worry about this. Right. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who at the time was an ACLU volunteer attorney, in her legal brief, named two co-authors who actually didn't play a direct role in the case. And those were Judge Dorothy Kenyon and the topic of today's episode, Anne Polly Murray, whose Jane Crow and the Law legal theory in the 1960s pioneered this whole idea of the Equal Protection Clause applying to sex discrimination in the same way as race discrimination. And so Murray's entire uh, motivation for Jane Crow, which we'll get into more, is the idea that it would not only protect black women, hence the Jane Crow, that is the, you know, feminized version of Jim Crow, but lift everybody up by bridging the gap between civil rights and the women's movement. And if that sounds a lot like intersectionality, it is. I mean, in so many ways, Anne Polly Murray is the godmother of intersectionality. And also, if this sounds a lot like Ruth Bader Ginsburg paying symbolic homage to amazing women, which other guys who had relied on that legal theory of Murray's as well in the past did not do, um, it totally is. And I just that makes me love Notorious RBG even more. Yeah. Well, so we need to now dive into Polly's story. Yes, her name is Anne Paulina Murray, but she opted to go by the name Polly. So let's dive into her complex and multifaceted past. So to kick things off, why don't we reference her own description of herself, which kind of uh, gets at the internal struggles that drove her public work. So, for instance, in a 1967 letter to the National Organization of Women, she wrote, I hold the status of multiple minorities. I can't allow myself to be fragmented into Negro at one time, woman at another, or worker at another. I must find a unifying principle in all of these movements to which I can adhere. So from that, we can hear that struggle that she really wrestled with her entire life between all of these identities and intersections that she embodied. She's African-American. She's a woman. She's a gender questioning person who is attracted to women. Um, she has experiences in poverty and income instability. Um, so and she even in her younger years, she gave names to her various identities of sorts. Yeah, she had the crusader, the imp, and the dude, not to mention the priest, which is an identity that came later. But I mean, also, this is a woman who's an incredible legal scholar. She's a feminist, a poet, a workers' rights activist, which her political leanings and her work for labor rights actually tripped her up politically later in her life a little bit. And of course, you know, that whole priest thing, she became an Episcopal saint in 2012. She's a saint. She's a saint. The more I found out about her, the more astonished and kind of (laughs) upset I got that I was only just now learning about her. Right. And I mean, that's in a lot of the that sentiment is in a lot of the articles that you will read about Polly these days, because there is this attitude of like, where have you been my whole life? And she's always been there. She always was there. But her legacy has for so long just been buried and kind of forgotten. And so it's it's now that we're starting to see more attention paid to just how important she is to this country's legal history. Well, and I think that we are starting to recognize her more because our society has finally caught up to. Right. Caught up to her. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but in the meantime, while she was alive, she was trailblazing left and right. I mean, sainthood aside, (laughs) she was the first woman of color to serve as California's deputy attorney general. She was the first African-American to earn a doctorate from Yale and the first black female Episcopal priest. 
So, I mean, we just talked about how she's been sort of sidelined from history and that question of why comes up a lot in any kind of scholarly writing about her. And clearly, as we'll explain more, there is the issue of society just, you know, being too slow. I mean, she was a woman in so many ways ahead of her time, but it was also because she wasn't satisfied with only fighting for civil rights or women's rights or labor rights. She wanted to bridge all of the gaps. Yeah, well, she wanted to bridge all of the gaps because they were all aspects of her. I mean, she, like Kristen has said, really struggled early on with bits and pieces of her identity, which society was telling her either weren't right uh, or they were at odds with each other. You know, she wrote in her autobiography, in a world of black-white opposites, I had no place. Being neither very dark nor very fair, I was a nobody without identity. So let's look at her childhood. She was born in 1910 in Baltimore as Anna Paulina. She was the fourth of six children to mother Agnes Fitzgerald and father William Murray. But she was orphaned very early. Her mom died when she was four. And at 12, her father was actually murdered by a guard at the Crownsville State Hospital, where he was a patient undergoing treatment for major depression. Now, after her mother died when she was four, she was sent from Baltimore to Durham, North Carolina, where she was raised largely by her maternal grandparents, who encouraged her to be as educated and as exemplary as possible for both racial and familial uplift. I mean, this is a family of middle class African-Americans living in the Jim Crow South. Um, so that's where the idea and, and the need for that racial uplift comes from. And in terms of familial uplift, her maternal grandmother, who was helping raise her, Cornelia, was born a slave. And Cornelia's mother was also a slave who was raped by her white slave owner. So her grandmother was actually raised by both her paternal aunt and owner. Right. And so that side of the family tree is something that uh, Polly really struggles with in her autobiography, where uh, she talks a lot about the genealogical process of going back through a family history and how it puts so much of herself and her family into the context of the time. Uh, she really had to come face to face with those ugly facts that she talks about how a lot of African-American families at the time weren't willing or ready or very eager to sort of dive back into. That's that's an open wound. It's a lot of pain. And so she talks about how she had to come face to face to that with that because just as she had been so proud and ready to accept the branch of the family tree that were freedmen, her one of her grandfathers, for instance, was emancipated and then fought for the union. Yeah. And she had a, a really strong attachment to her grandparents, um, but tragically, again, it was like she was orphaned a second time because both of her grandparents died by the time she was 13. And she kind of considered that the end of her childhood. I mean, Polly grew up very fast, it seems like. Well, she went to live with her aunt, who was her namesake. And this is the aunt who she credits so much. Yes, she found so much inspiration in her, all of her grandparents and great grandparents, but it was her aunt who she says really encouraged her to be herself and be sort of fulfill her destiny as the amazing child that she was. Yeah. And the first step along the way to fulfilling her destiny, and she really did have a sense of destiny was attending Hunter College. So she heads up to New York in 1928 and she graduates in 19. 33 and college is incredibly difficult for her financially. I mean, she's struggling to make ends meet to the point that she suffers malnutrition and like the, the illness that she encounters during college because she's so poor and can't feed herself very well. I mean, it kind of haunts her for the rest of her life. It leaves her rather frail, although you would not know it by the legacy that she leaves behind. Um, but after graduation, she finally finds some teaching work with the Works Progress Administration and as an activist for the Workers Defense League. But it's this whole time that she's also questioning 
both her gender identity and her sexual orientation, she really struggled with feeling like she was a man trapped in a woman's body, her words, but also struggling with this attraction to feminine women. She wrote to her doctors saying, I, I've got to find a solution. Like, I don't know why I feel this attraction because you've also got to keep in mind at the time that being gay was considered a psychiatric disorder. Yeah. And in a note to her doctor that she wrote in 1937, she said, why do I desire monogamous married life as a completion? Because she's, you know, she's struggling with her same sex attraction to women. But at the same time, because of that desire to succeed professionally, but also have the quote unquote normal family life was something that was also very much ingrained in her and very important to her. And clearly a point of personal conflict for her. And I, and I think it's important as um, there was one academic we were reading uh, who pointed out that while today she might have identified as transgender or a lesbian she never labeled herself as such um, back then. I mean, well, for one, one reason, the term transgender didn't even exist in the 1930s. Um, but she she knew that something was up and she really wanted a biological explanation for it um, in her 20s and 30s. She was really enamored with new research on hormones and glands and Part of why she was so compelled um, and and even at one point uh, requested an exploratory surgery to see if she had a male genitalia like secreted inside of her, as she put it, was because of the specter of mental illness within her family. I mean, you have like you mentioned, Caroline, at the time, homosexuality was considered a psychiatric disorder. And that was terrifying for her, considering how her dad was murdered when he was in a psychiatric hospital, and there had been other mental health issues in her family. Yeah, and so she did seek both psychiatric and hormonal treatment, but doctors refused to give her male hormones, simply telling her to conform to female expectations. Um, that doesn't mean she didn't experiment. She There's lots of pictures of her, and she talks about how she explored gender identity and presentation, particularly in her younger years, in her 20s and 30s, uh, by wearing men's clothing. And this is around the time when she also opts to start going by the name Polly instead of Anne. Yeah. And it, if we look back at her 1931 autobiographical photo album, The Life and Times of an American called Polly Murray, um, the image of the dude is clearly the, uh, the identity within her that's questioning gender and what it means and how it applies to her. And she, in one of the photos, she has sort of, you know, she has men's clothes on and a men's style hairdo. Um, but you can see as she goes to law school and her legal career picks up and her public profile increases, you see her dress in more traditionally feminine ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there, there's one picture that we saw of her. Was it from law school or after where it's one of those like very old school, you know, from the side kind of pictures where she's looking off into the distance and the caption on the back of the photo was first and last upswept hairdo. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, she kind of like those doctors when she was in her 20s and 30s said, you know, they told her to conform to female expectations. I think she did feel like she had to for a lot of her early public presentation and persona. You know, you you see her exclusively in dresses in those early years, especially like in pictures where she's with Betty Friedan and a picture uh, with the early founding staff of now. And in law school, she's wearing all of those dresses and those hairdos. But as you get old, as she gets older, I should say, uh, you start to see her. Oh, yeah, this is the woman who said she prefers pants to dresses. <laughs> like you start to see her almost just so sort of start to look more like herself. Well, and there was one anecdote from uh, when she was in the priesthood of her being delighted that she would sometimes get mistaken for a guy, uh, partly because she had short 
cropped hair and glasses. And she even had rocked a little lady mustache mm-hmm. in her old age. And um, obviously, like priestly clothes are gender ambiguous. And being the first female priest, you would kind of just expect it to be a guy. But she was like, oh, I, I loved it. Yeah. Well, because, yeah, I mean, like you said, transgender wasn't a term in use yet, but I'm sure it must have felt great for someone to look at you and identify you as the way that you tend. I don't not that I want to put words in anyone's mouth, but the way that you have felt inside. You know? Yeah, I mean, but I, I well, and I also think it's interesting that part of her concern over how she felt was not just her attraction to women and her discomfort in uh, with f- feminine gendered clothing, but also she felt like her ambition and drive mm-hmm. was also highly masculine and a sign that something wasn't entirely right. And part of why she wanted to fight for women's rights, because she was like, oh, I can't. This womanhood is is holding me back. Like, I know I'm a woman, but. I I don't feel like I I should be because of all of this stuff that I want to accomplish. Yeah. So many layers to gender identity. Who's surprised? No one. (laughs) No one. Well, and she carried on, though, open romantic relationships, though, with a number of women. Um, And in her later life, she forged a 17 year relationship with a woman named Irene Barlow, um, whom she met uh, at a law firm in 1956, and it lasted until Barlow's death. And they're buried under the same headstone in New York. Yeah. Yeah, I think she, because I think when Barlow died, uh, at the time, um, Polly was teaching at Brandeis, and she ended up leaving her position because she was so heartbroken that she felt like, I can't, I can't go on. But then, uh, in her posthumously published autobiography, Song in a Weary Throat, there's no mention whatsoever of same-sex relationships. So clearly there are lots of intersections happening within this one person. And in the next phase of her life and career, as we're going to get into, this is when we see all of her brain power then being applied to all of her identities and struggles and how she applied that to empowering marginalized groups. And we're going to get into that when we come right back from a quick break. So if there's one big thing that uh, Polly Murray understood ahead of her time was the how discrimination cuts across identities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we might take that so for granted today, but that was a revolutionary concept not so long ago. Um, and speaking to the Washington Post in 1977, Polly said, this society is not hospitable to persons of color, women, or left-handed people. <laughs> Ain't that the truth, Conger? Well, listen, as a lefty, I agree. And so, uh, while I do appreciate her humor, that should not indicate that she was anything other than deadly serious about the discrimination that she and others around her were facing. Uh, in 1938, let's, let's just go through basically the history of what she overcame that ended up contributing to the person that she, well, I want to say the person that she became, but I mean, she already was this person. She was this fighter. So we've got to give this backstory, though, so you know exactly what she went through. In 1938, she was denied graduate school admission at UNC Chapel Hill because of her race. And she knew this was wrong. She knew this was ridiculous. She knew she was up against a discriminatory machine. So she launched a letter writing campaign that attracted the attention and the friendship of one Eleanor Roosevelt. And she actually, through correspondence with Eleanor, became a personal advisor to her on civil and human rights issues. Well, and the UNC president at the time knew Murray was qualified enough to gain entrance. And he even consulted the U.S. Senate on this. I mean, (laughs) and this is incredible to me. Already at this point in her life, she's like... Oh, like sounding the alarm all the way up to the White House. Um, and later in life, though, 
when UNC Chapel Hill tries to grant her an honorary degree, Murray says, oh, no thanks, and declines it. Love it. I know. Stuck to her guns, that woman did. But the thing is, like, that's 1938. I feel like this sounds like, oh, yeah, of course, something like that must have happened in the 60s, people pushing back against uh, segregation and racism and discrimination. This is 1938. This woman's ahead of her time. She's also ahead of her time because in 1940, 15 years before Rosa Parks in Montgomery, Alabama, Polly and her lady friend Adeline McBreen were arrested in Virginia for refusing to move to the back of a Greyhound bus. And so what possibly contributed to this uh, contentious uh, conflict scenario was the fact that she was actually dressed in men's clothes at the time. And uh, that could have contributed to antagonizing the police toward her. Yeah, uh, there was a headline, though, from the time reporting on the incident. Uh, it was Jim Crow bus dispute leads to girls arrest. And the news article describes her as a honey tongued legal mind. Mm. Well, wow. Don't mess with her. I mean, even then, honey-tongued legal mind. And the same year, uh, her honey-tongued legal mind was hired by the Workers' Defense League to pardon a black sharecropper who was convicted of murder. And she returns to Virginia to raise money and meets prominent civil rights lawyers, which inspires her to start Howard Law School with the aspiration of becoming an NAACP lawyer. So she starts law school in 1941, but law school going to Howard where race is no longer the discriminatory issue, sex discrimination comes to the forefront. Yeah, it's during this time that she coins that term Jane Crow to describe her experience of the double race and sex-based discrimination. And one source we read described it as a theory born from her own struggles with categories that seem to do violence to Murray's own sense of self, sometimes black and white, but far more often men and women. And she's still active in civil rights protests. It's during these years at Howard that she also participates in silent demonstrations and sit-ins at a Washington, D.C. cafeteria. Again, keep in mind, this woman's ahead of her time. It's the 40s. I feel like... School children today tend to think of the civil rights movement as like a 60s thing. Yeah. And in her graduating thesis from Howard was titled, Should the Civil Rights Cases and Plessy Be Overruled? And she's referring to Plessy v. Ferguson, the case which upheld separate but equal. And she's arguing, obviously, that Plessy should be overturned. This is 10 years before Brown versus the Board of Education case would overturn that separate but equal clause. But when Polly first suggests this, all the guys in her class laughed at her. She described it as hoots of derisive laughter. But Polly would get the last laugh, sort of, when Brown v. Board of Education took place because NAACP chief counsel Thurgood Marshall used Murray's thesis as a strategic guide to argue the case. But the thing is, all of this was unbeknownst to Murray for years because he never gave her credit for it. Mm. (laughs) Like, come on, man. Come on, Thurgood. We could all stand to learn a little something from RBG. I know. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, hashtag shine theory. Knows how to attribute. So uh Polly graduates as the valedictorian of her Howard University class, naturally, uh, which typically would have parlayed into a scholarship to get uh, a master's in law at Harvard. However, she was not a man. Yeah. So Harvard admissions wrote back to Polly saying, quote, your picture and the salutation on your college transcript indicate that you were not of the sex entitled to be admitted to Harvard Law School. Come on. What a drag. <sighs> and and here's the whole Jane Crow thing, too, coming into play, because she writes about how her male civil rights comrades had really sympathized with her race-based UNC rejection years earlier. But when it came to her being rejected by Harvard, they were simply amused at the idea that she wanted to go there anyway. So there was none of that support, that community support rallying around her for for this particular rejection. It was more of like a, oh, you silly woman. Oh, 
Well, that silly woman decided to take herself to get her master's of law degree at UC Berkeley instead. And she graduated in 1945 and then became the state's first black deputy attorney general. A few years later, in 1951, she pens the state's laws on race and colors, which was a compilation of all race-related state-level laws. And this might sound like an insignificant detail. Why are you telling us about this directory that this woman wrote, essentially? Well, because yet again, she is writing what would essentially become known as the Bible of civil rights law. Yeah, exactly. She had compiled it at the request of the Methodist Church's women's division, (laughs) which I love. I'm like, who? But uh, so working very closely with women from a church, and it just became this critical piece of writing for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, and just again and again and again, she's laying all of this legal foundation, doing all of this legwork for these, you know, landmark cases mm-hmm. and desegregation that will happen many years later. Well, yeah, I mean, she but all of this is driven by her her personal convictions. I mean, she writes about how segregation places a badge of inferiority on black children. And and so it was it was looking into her past seeing her own experiences with discrimination and and looking at the community around her that drove her to try to make this world a better place. Well, and also, too, going back to her family tree, that duality of blackness and also the violent whiteness that was in there with, um, you know, the rape of her great grandmother. Um, and she spends a lot of time after 1951, she spends Four years, actually, going back to North Carolina and researching all about her family. And she ends up publishing sort of like a familial autobiography called Proud Shoes, The Story of an American Family. And Caroline, I got to say, this reminded me a lot of you because genealogy is a hobby of yours. Oh, my God. I know. I've lost so much sleep since the holidays because I've been on a total family research kick. But did you feel at least a little bonded to to Polly? Well, I did. I did because um, just her passion for it and and seeing her give voice to a lot of the same things that I feel in terms of the importance of kind of figuring out where you come from, because it's no small It's no small, insignificant thing to figure out who your people were. She writes, the conviction grew in me that one of the best ways to incorporate social and political history into one's experience is to embark on a search into one's family history. These ancient documents spoke to me of a common humanity and narrowed the distances between races, classes, and political positions. And I mean, this is a woman who had to come to terms with her multiracial, as she put it, past and origins, someone who had to embrace both the amazing freedmen in her tree, but also the slave ancestors who she writes about who didn't have they did have a complicated relationship, obviously, with the white people who owned them. But she writes about having to come to terms with the complexities of realizing that her great grandmother didn't hate these people. She was quite friendly and intimate with the white women of that family. So as you might imagine, it's that dual heritage that had a huge effect on her and gave her a strong sense of personal identity. She writes about it as the tangled roots from which I sprang and said she felt it was part of her destiny to counteract the effects of stereotypes that black people had played no significant role in U.S. history. And that's what's so addictive about family research and genealogy. It's it's digging into the past and realizing that whether you're at the top of the socioeconomic heap or at the bottom, all of these people played such an important role in the foundation of this country. And so that really played a role in helping her define who she was. Yeah. And and the more she learned about herself and where she came from and the more deeply embedded she became in the civil rights movement, motivated by those tangled roots uh, that she wrote about. It also fueled her feminism um, because 
As we move into the 60s and 70s, particularly when the Black Power movement arises, she becomes really uncomfortable with the power structures that she sees emerging in it. And uh, for instance, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but just to give you a sense of where we're going, in a 1970 essay, she wrote, The main thrust of black militancy is a bid of black males to share power with white males in a continuing patriarchal society in which both black and white females are relegated to a secondary status. Yeah, and this is this is where it's important to remember her push for um, both protection for both sex and racial discrimination, because her attitude was that if you protect for both, then you uplift everyone, like we mentioned earlier. Yeah. So if we go back to 1961, she's a big deal. JFK appoints her to the President's Committee on the Status of Women, as well as the Commission on Civil and Political Rights. And the more immersed she gets in the civil rights movement, the more she starts to see and call out sexism within the movement because of its avoidance of appointing women to visible leadership roles and tacitly endorsing gender segregation by, for instance, appearing at the National Press Club, which enraged her because at the time the National Press Club excluded women. So she was like, what are you doing? You're you can't stay in this one space that doesn't allow these people in while you're advocating for the rights of more people. Yeah, and it's interesting because you've also got to keep in mind that there were a lot of civil rights leaders who saw women's rights as a completely separate issue, which echoes back to our episodes that we've done on suffrage and black women in the abolition and suffrage movements, because it was sort of the other side of the coin back then. All of these women pushing for suffrage and women's rights were like, eh, black issues are a totally separate thing. Stop distracting from the cause. Yeah, I mean, and in a way, like her biography does echo a lot of the women that we talked about. Um, Ida B. Wells comes to mind of someone straddling both suffrage and abolition and often being caught at those intersections. Um, so 1964 is... A pivotal year, not only for Polly, but also for the U.S., because this is when the Civil Rights Act is enacted. And this is the year that she co-authors her landmark paper, Jane Crow and the Law, Sex Discrimination and Title VII, published in uh, the George Washington Law Review. And this was a really radical idea, this whole Jane Crow of crystallizing that double discrimination of being not only African-American, but also female, because as Harvard law professor Kenneth W. Mack points out, this is the early 1960s. You still have laws on the books excluding women from certain jobs like like bartending, for instance. Um, you have all male juries going on. Um, and we even have in 1961 uh, SCOTUS Justice John Marshall Harlan writing, woman is still regarded as the center of home and family. That's where she belongs. I added that last bit of that's where she belongs. <laughs> well, yeah, it's that idea of benevolent sexism, that women must be protected from certain dangerous or unsavory situations, whether it's being a bartender or being a juror. Yeah. And so she publishes this paper in the same year. I mean, she's so busy. I want to know so also her secret to productivity. <laughs> That's another episode, I guess. Um, but the same year, she individually lobbies congressmen and even Lady Bird Johnson to include sex, the word sex, in the Civil Rights Act to make sure that it not only protects against racial discrimination, but also gender-based discrimination. And she was able to convince congressmen to include it because she was the first one to argue not that it would benefit solely white women or that it would possibly um, negatively impact black men, but she raised the issue of its impact on black women. I mean, that's another thing, an undercurrent to all of this stuff that's going on is the complete 
invisibility of black women in our society for so long. Yeah, well, she writes, I mean, speaking about herself, she wrote about being a minority of a minority of being a woman who is also black and the hardships that come along with that. Yeah. And and so she was able to make the convincing argument that you must include that sex clause, because if you don't, you will leave out this entire population of black women and only increase the social burden that they're bearing. (laughs) And meanwhile... The next year, she becomes the first African-American to earn a JSD from Yale. And her dissertation is Roots of the Racial Crisis, Prologue to Policy. And I note all these things that she's writing because, again, how is she doing all this? How does she how does she do it, Caroline? I have no I have no idea. And and she wanted to add to it because she also wanted to get a law school teaching job after she graduated, but no one would hire her. And there have been questions about whether that distancing from her, as successful as she was, as prominent as she was at the time, that her outward queerness possibly um, alienated her from certain employment. Interesting. Well, OK, so we mentioned the whole jury thing earlier about uh, benevolent sexism and and women at the time being uh, exempt from jury service unless they volunteered. Well, that whole idea comes up again in 1966 when, along with the ACLU legal team, Polly co-writes the brief in the case White v. Cook, which struck down the constitutionality of all white, all male juries. This gets rid of all of those quote unquote protections for women She had wanted it, though, to reach the Supreme Court and serve as women's Brown versus Board of Education. And speaking of women, the same year, she becomes a founding member of the National Organization for Women. She had suggested, actually, to Betty Friedan that there needed to be some sort of NAACP for women. Um, And I mean, by this point, it makes total sense that she's so engaged with Uh, the feminist movement because of all the groundwork that had been laid going back to her sexist treatment at Howard, um, being on the president's commission on the status of women researching this. And also, of course, it's embedded in her Jane Crow theory and her personal repulsion at the anti-feminism of some civil rights leaders, as well as uh, leaders of the black power movement. But I mean, she didn't she didn't entirely find a home, not surprisingly, in in second wave feminism, which was largely led by middle and upper class white women. Yeah. I mean, she said that she did feel more comfortable within feminism, but she quickly took issue with now's sidelining of civil rights leaders. So it's that back and forth of like. Over here, they don't want this aspect of me. And over here, they don't want this other aspect of me. So she ends up leaving, joining the ACLU, and from there is instrumental in ACLU adopting women's rights as a key priority. And from there, she finally gets the teaching job that she had so long been wanting. She becomes a tenured professor at Brandeis, um, and she ends up developing some of the first Black Women's Studies courses as an American Studies professor. Yeah, I mean, she's not a two-dimensional person by any means. I mean, her one of her original interests on her way to grad school was sociology, but she, you know, didn't go to UNC, took the law route, thankfully. Um, But, I mean, this is a woman with so many different interests. Like, you know, I'm reading all of this stuff about her, and then it's like, oh, yeah, and I mean, she started all of these black women's studies classes, and you're like, what? How? How does who has the time? This woman, like she's this is the most driven woman I think I've ever read about. Oh, and not to mention, Caroline, she was publishing poetry, too, all the while, because she I think her father wrote poetry and she always felt that that was a connection to him, you know, Mm because she lost him uh, when she was 12. I mean, although she was obviously separated from him before that. But if we jump forward, she's 62. She's done so much. You'd think that Polly would like kick up her feet and just chill out for the rest of her life. No, 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 no. She has one more first to accomplish. At 62, she enters 
Episcopal Seminary, despite the church not yet ordaining women. Apparently in like 1974, seven women had been <laughs> sort of like casually ordained. They were like, we're like kind of priests, but it's not really official. But Polly Murray was like, no, 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 this is nonsense. The sexism is ridiculous. And I love this faith. I'm going to seminary. And in 1977, she became the first black female Episcopal priest. And fascinating details. She leads her first Eucharist in the same North Carolina church where her grandmother Cornelia had been baptized 123 years earlier as a slave. I mean, full circle. Polly yeah. took it full circle. It, it almost her bio almost reads as if she <laughs> had some kind of blueprint she was following because it's like, how else could you accomplish so much in so many different corners of our society? Well, yeah. And I mean, she also writes in terms of uh, entering the seminary, she writes about how Irene Barlow's death sort of sparked something in her that was undeniable. It was this she'd always sort of had a connection with Christianity, but something in her was driven to dedicate her life to it instead of just, you know, belonging to a church or going to a church. She just felt it in her being that she had to do this, pursue this path. And it was she writes about how it was fulfilling a different part of her. Obviously, all of her legal work, uh, her women's studies work, all of that had fulfilled very specific and large parts of her and served the community. But it was time to serve at this age it was time to serve a different part of herself and a different portion of the community well and i love how yet again her priesthood is an example of that personal drive being the compulsion to have that outwardly manifested into something to enrich the world outside her mm -hmm. because um it was also with irene barlow that she um, became more immersed in the church. They would go to church together and it was, uh, you know, a significant part of their relationship. And so I like thinking of her going to seminary as, um, I don't know, as, as almost an homage to Irene and that love that they had, which I couldn't find out much about, especially because it's not really documented in her personal papers or her autobiographies. Um, there's, there's not much out there about Irene. So after such a rich and accomplished and sometimes highly conflicted life in 1985, she dies and her autobiography, Song in a Weary Throat, comes out two years later. And it's not until 2012 that the General Convention of the Episcopal Church makes her a saint. I mean, what a fitting end to this. Sainthood. Yeah. You know? I know. I'm picturing because there's this great picture of her where she it's close up and she's wearing her collar and she's smiling into the camera with her glasses on. And I just imagine a little halo going above her head like ding. I mean, the the things that this woman contributed to our world and our society are incredible. She broke so many barriers and and she meant to. I mean, this is a woman who meant to break these freaking barriers like she knew what she was up against. She knew what she was doing. And the very life, her very existence was against the norm and breaking barriers. And I mean, you know, talk about a, a heroine for 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 all of us. Yeah, because I mean, that was her goal to embody intersectionality, even though that word had not been coined yet by yet another uh, female legal scholar down the road and uh, bridging gaps and uplifting marginalized people because of all of the different layers of identities and experiences yeah. that she had. And you're so right about the intentionality of all of it. Even when she applied to grad school at UNC, she knew she wasn't going to get in. She knew that they had a policy um, barring people of color from admissions. I mean, but she didn't care. You know, she wanted to make a point. Well, I just I I am so fascinated to look at modern uh, feminism and politics in light of Polly Murray's life, because 
you know, I, I don't know how many times we can say that she was ahead of her time because we need so many more minds like hers that work to incorporate all of these different layers of, yes, gender and sexuality, but also race and uh, socioeconomics. I mean, this woman tried to incorporate and did incorporate all of this into her life's work. Well, and it makes me so curious to know what she would say about intersectionality today if she was sitting here with us and what she would undoubtedly be seeing as the next step she would because she you know she of course she would be if she were alive today she would already be like 12 steps ahead of us yeah so i almost wish that she were still around to tell us what to do next yeah well listeners i hope that Polly Murray's legacy has resonated as much with you as it has with us. Caroline, I've been telling so many people about her, <laughs> by the way. Um, and I'm curious to know from, from folks whether they had heard of her before. Uh, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can send us your letters. And if there are other unsung trailblazers that we should look into, please let us know. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Elizabeth. She says, I just listened to the episode on feminist marriages, and like everyone, their mom, their dog, and their downstairs neighbor, I have a couple cents I want to throw in about last names. I've heard a lot of women talk about how it's a feminist win to keep their own last name after getting married. Some women get pretty smug about this, which is obnoxious to say the least, but what nobody seems to mention about this is ahem, a woman's maiden, barf, Last name is, uh, her dad's name. More likely than not, a woman who was U.S. born to an English-speaking family and plenty of other backgrounds have their dad's name. Dads are almost always men, and fatherhood is a concept and social familial structure that is at the very root of patriarchy. Quite literally, if we look at the root of the word, patriarchy. So I'm not married and probably will never make that choice for myself, but it drives me nuts to hear the fact that an unmarried woman's last name is probably her dad's last name, who's also a man, who is or was also a perceived authority figure. I say all this to say women are kind of screwed on this front, so we should just do whatever we want with our last names and not feel compelled one way or another by patriarchy or feminism to change or keep it. In the 70s and earlier, it was definitely super subversive and radical, but these days, I think people need to chill out a little before they start asking for medals for keeping their dad's name instead of taking their male spouses. Anyways, have been, am currently, and will remain a huge fan of the cast. Keep it up. <laughs> well, thank you, Elizabeth. Loved your letter. I've got a letter here from Carrie, also about our Feminist Marriage podcast. And she writes, I've been married to a wonderful feminist dude for eight years now, and it's been wonderful... Congratulations, Carrie. We took each other's names because we viewed marriage as the merging of our two lives. As a consequence, we are the only Holly Hurts in the world, and that's pretty cool. I enjoyed Meg Keane's view of marriage, especially what she said about household duties being a negotiation. I completely agree with that, although our system is a little less formal. We both take on chores we have time for or we're better at. So I cook and he cleans the kitchen. But when it comes to things neither of us wants to do, like changing a dirty diaper, we go toe-to-toe -to -toe in a rousing game of rock, paper, scissors. It's the perfect way to get things done without either of us feeling like we're doing more than the other. But Carrie, what if one of you is just like really, really good at rock, paper, scissors? I'm just <laughs> wondering. She goes on to say, though, marriage takes work, but I imagine it's a hell of a lot easier when you have a partner that respects you and gets it. We're just doing this thing and clinging on to each other for dear life. So thank you, Carrie. And um, I'm wishing you the uh, best of luck with some rock, paper, scissors victories. <laughs> and friends, keep your letters coming. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send them. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, with our sources so you can learn more about Holly Murray. Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 